Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I'm solo with you today for this week's episode. But before we get started, I wanted to thank everyone for listening because we just reached over 60,000 downloads. So thank you so much. And a special shout out to a listener from Russia, sportsmixer at rambler.ru, reached out to us through our website just to say thank you. So thank you back. And if you'd like to reach out to us, of course, you can do that through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com and also through our Facebook page with the same name. Our Instagram page is Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D. And we also have a YouTube channel at Criminal Discourse Podcast. And we would only ask that whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could take a moment and give us a review, we'd appreciate it. If you gave us a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. So we're going to get started right away with this week's episode, which takes place in Tacoma, Washington, which is located in Pierce County along the Puget Sound. Now, Tacoma was known as the City of Destiny because it was chosen as the western destination of the Northern Pacific Railroad in the 19th century. And it was originally named an indigenous name after the nearby Mount Rainier. So it used to be called Tacoma or Tahoma. So on March 28, 1987, inside Baldy's Tavern, and I believe it's pronounced Pile Loop, Poa Loop, my listeners out in Washington State, let me know if I mispronounce that or not. 21-year-old Robin Smith and her fiancé, Laron Croston, met another couple, Mary Barnes and Darren O'Neill. Now, not wanting the party to end when the bar was closing around 2 a.m., Barnes and O'Neill invited the couple back to their apartment, and the party continued, and around 5 a.m., Laron left the party as he had plans to go fishing that day with friends. Now, he wanted Robin to go with him, but she wanted to stay. So on Sunday, when Robin had yet to make contact with Laron, he called her mother, Edna Smith, assuming that she had maybe stayed at her house. Now, Edna checked Robin's old bedroom, but she wasn't there. Now, this worried Laron and Edna, as this was totally out of character for Robin. So the family immediately contacted the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. Now, Robin Pamela Smith was born on April 4th, 1965 in New Britain, Connecticut to Edna and Stuart Smith. And when Robin was 12 years old, her family moved out to the Pacific Northwest. Now, unfortunately, she wasn't a stranger to tragedy. When she was 16 years old, one of her best friends, who she thought had moved to California, was actually living in Seattle and had been a victim of a brutal rape murder. Now, the, her murder was thought to be connected at first to the Green River Killer, because that was going on at the time. But it didn't really fit the M.O. as investigators were looking more into the crime, as she had been killed in an apartment. Now, Robin overcame this tragedy, and she was engaged to be married, and she was a hard worker. She had been working as a waitress to save up her money for her upcoming wedding. Now, Robin is described as being quite attractive. She was 5'3", 115 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes. So detectives first wanted to speak to the owners of the apartment, right? The people that hosted the after party. But they were only able to talk to Mary Barnes. And she told detectives that she had planned to drive Robin home early that morning, but her plans changed when she hooked up with another man at the party, leaving her apartment around 8 a.m. 
telling the group like, well, hey, I'm going to go get some beer. Now, when she returned later that day, neither Robin nor her live-in boyfriend Darren were there. Now, also missing from the apartment were several items, namely all of Darren's clothes, food, camping equipment, a blanket, an electrical cord attached to the TV had been removed, and two other extension cords used for lamps were gone. So detectives asked if they could look around, and Mary agreed. So detectives found a storage box that had belonged to O'Neill. Now inside were several social security cards, which probably was a red flag since you only normally get one. And one of the social security cards had the name of Zebulon McCranahan. Now McCranahan detectives would come to find out was a character in a book written by Louis L'Amour and was an alias that O'Neill had used in the past. Now, Mary also told detectives that when she left, Darren had been talking to Robin about his love of reading Louis L'Amour novels, and his novels were more about the Old West, and O'Neill talked about wanting to live off the land just like the novel cowboys he had read about. Now, Barnes told detectives that O'Neill was currently unemployed, but had worked in the past as a bartender and a laminator at a cabinet-making business. She also told detectives what they would later confirm from others is that O'Neill would often change his appearance. So he was known for growing out his hair, then cutting it short, and wearing a beard, then not having a beard, and fluctuating his weight. Now, detectives at this point weren't really hopeful that Robin would be found safe, since they knew some things really weren't adding up here. What detectives Detectives didn't know is that around 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, O'Neill had gone to see one of his former employers to ask for some money. He told them that he was interested in buying a truck and was going to head out east towards the Cascade Mountains. Now, when O'Neill arrived, he was driving a 1972 tan Chrysler New Yorker with Montana license plates. As he was about to leave, the former employer ran over to his car, offering to write him a check. That's when the employer noticed that something was pushing against the back seat of the car from the trunk side. Now, O'Neill claimed that he had put his dog back there as punishment, and he suddenly took off. Now, later, when the employer would talk to police, he would tell them that, yeah, I didn't hear a dog barking from inside the trunk. Now, on the evening of March 29th, a man entered a local hospital ER requesting help for some facial cuts he had gotten. Now, the nurses on staff that night were a little on edge with this guy because he just didn't seem right. And they didn't, for whatever reason, have any security in the ER. So they called down some male co-workers to be on standby. What they noticed from this man is that he had a teardrop tattoo in the corner of his one eye and the letters J-U N-E across the knuckles of his left hand. And the man, who appeared to be very nervous, had left the ER suddenly without receiving any treatment. Now, detectives had no idea where Darren O'Neill had gone, and they started running down any lead they could find. What they discovered was that O'Neill had a warrant out for his arrest from Colorado Springs, Colorado, where he had been accused of sexual assault. So police blanketed the area with flyers about Robin's disappearance and her identifying features, O'Neill's identifying features, and they especially put in the flyer what she was last seen wearing, which was blue jeans, a pink and white shirt, a lavender jacket, and tennis shoes. They also entered O'Neill's physical characteristics, his tattoos, and the make and model of the car he was last seen driving into the NCIS system. Now, O'Neill was 5'11", 170 pounds, medium build, blonde hair, blue eyes, and a light complexion. In talking with another former employer of O'Neill's, they discovered that he had also been looking for O'Neill. He told detectives that on O'Neill's last day, he had taken a hammer from the shop he was working at and he wanted it back. 
On March 30th, a highway flagman who had seen the flyers contacted the police, and he had told them on that day he was working the highway east of Tacoma when he saw the 1972 Chrysler heading south. Now, what stood out to him was that this car didn't seem to be hauling any ski equipment, as most vehicles did as they were headed towards Mount Rainier. Now, a few hours later, he saw the same car at a gas station near the highway heading the opposite direction. The flagman was shown a photo lineup, and he easily picked out O'Neill. Now, meanwhile, a Washington state trooper spotted a tan Chrysler on the afternoon of March 30th at an area rest stop 15 miles north of Everett, Washington, which is north of Seattle. Now, unaware of the ongoing investigation, he called in the license plate in the vehicle description. Now, normally, this would have triggered the NCIC listing, but that didn't happen because the police communications officer had mistakenly typed in M-O and not M-T for the initials for Montana. M-O stands for Missouri. So the car was towed to a nearby impound lot for future sale. So while all this is going on, the local newspapers had run stories about Robin's abduction and what the police had released to the media regarding the car they were looking for. Now, a tow truck driver was reading the story and he's like, hmm, come to think of it, I have a car similar to that in the lot. So he checked the car and it matched the make and model of what they were looking for and the license plate from Montana. So he immediately contacted police. Police took control of that car and they ran the vehicle ID number. And that came back as being stolen from Idaho in 1986. The person suspected of stealing the car was Zebulon McCranahan. And Detective Wilson of the Pierce County Police Department remembered that was one of the aliases O'Neill had used. Now, at the Pierce County Police Garage, the Chrysler was processed for any traced evidence. And in the trunk, technicians found a large amount of dried blood, along with a blood-stained lavender jacket. Now, Robin's mother would later identify it as belonging to Robin. Now, also in the trunk, they found teeth, and bone chips, along with a clump of hair. And empty beer cans would be processed, and O'Neill's fingerprints would be on them. Hope that Robin was still alive were all but gone. And her case had gone from a missing persons to a homicide. Now, at the Washington State Forensics Lab, they had started to work on confirming that the teeth and the bone chips and the blood were, in fact, Robin's. But they ran into a problem, and that was that Robin had not been to see a dentist since she was a child. So they had no adult films, and she had no documented blood type on file. Now, since authorities were not able to confirm that the evidence collected was, in fact, Robin's, they could not file murder charges at that time. So meanwhile, in Bellingham, Washington, a detective, Jarrett, was working on a missing persons case. Now, Bellingham is located approximately 120 miles north of Tacoma. And on April 24, 1987, Wendy Oggy, a 28-year-old single mother, was reported missing after she failed to pick her daughter up after going on a date the previous evening. Wendy's mother had gone over to her house the next morning and that is when she discovered blood in Wendy's bed. She immediately contacted police. So police obtained a warrant and they started to collect evidence. Now what they noticed too was that Wendy's red Ford Torino was missing. And when police arrived and talked to Wendy's mother, they found out that Wendy's front door had been unlocked and her wallet and keys were gone. Police also found a large amount of blood had seeped into Wendy's mattress. They also found blood splatter, both medium and high velocity, on the 
walls of her bedroom, along with body seminal fluids left in the bed. So Wendy's whole bed was taken into evidence. And on the headboard, more of Wendy's blood would be found, along with two long blonde hairs that didn't belong to her. Also, a red acrylic fingernail would be found amongst the sheets. Now, according to Wendy's friends, she had gone out on a date with a man named Michael Johnson, and she had gotten her nails done for that date, and that's where the red acrylic fingernail came from. Now, Wendy had met Michael earlier in the day when she had gone to the La Paloma restaurant for lunch. Michael was the new bartender there. So when Detective Jarrett talked to the owner of the restaurant to inquire about what information Michael put down on his application, they discovered that there was no work application. Michael had just written down his information on a placemat. So that placemat was taken into evidence and sent off to the lab to see if they could pull off any fingerprints and in doing so, run them. So apparently Johnson had only worked for the restaurant for mm, two days before he suddenly took off after emptying out the cash register and stealing some liquor. So Detective Jarrett decided to track down the address that Michael Johnson had put down on his placemat. And it turned out to be the local lighthouse mission. Now Detective Jarrett spoke to the desk clerk there who remembered Johnson specifically specifically on the day he moved out of the mission. And that was the day after his date with Wendy. So around 7.30 a.m., Johnson left wearing a white shirt, black slacks, a vest, and a tie, telling him he was going to work, but that he would be moving out as he had met a lady and was moving in with her. And as he drove away, the clerk noticed Johnson was driving a red Ford Torino when he previously didn't own a car. So on May 1st, 1987, Detective Jarrett received a call from the police in Eugene, Oregon. They had found Wendy's car abandoned in a parking lot of a tavern on the corner of West 4th and Blair Streets. They were able to recover fingerprints that matched the fingerprints of Michael Johnson's placemat. So running the prints through the identification system, it showed a match to Darren D. O'Neill. Detective Jarrett contacted the Pierce County detectives and the two departments compared notes on both of their missing women's cases. Now, at this point, Pierce County reached out to the FBI for assistance, and Special Agent Del Orris was assigned to the case. Now, what the FBI knew was that O'Neill was an extremely mobile and dangerous predator who had a history of violent sexual acts against women, and he was now tied to two disappearances and one potential murder. Charges could not be formally filed, though, since neither woman's body had been discovered. But the sexual assault cases that were still pending in Colorado Springs, Colorado, could be. The FBI opened a federal case against O'Neill for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. And in May 1987, with O'Neill still on the loose, the FBI and local authorities launched a media campaign blakening the Pacific Northwest with O'Neill's various photos and any information they had in regards to the connection of these two missing women cases from Washington State, both of who were presumed dead. FBI agents fanned out across the Pacific Northwest trying to track down any leads. And they did get one from a trucker coming in on May 23rd, 1987, who told them that he had given a ride to a man who fit O'Neill's description, who had thanked him for the ride and told them that the police were after him. So one of the difficulties that investigators had was how often Neil would change his appearance. People believed that the pictures authorities had released 
had actually been two different people. And when you look at them, you Google his name and click images and you will see all his various photos and they do look like different men. The FBI began to focus on areas that a drifter might blend into, such as a bus station or a homeless shelter or even day labor camps. But all the leads they followed never seemed to pan out. They always seemed to be one step behind O'Neill. Now, Darren D. O'Neill was born on February 26, 1960 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was one of four children born to Daryl and Krista O'Neill. Now, the O'Neill family was constantly on the move due to Daryl O'Neill's career in the Army. So they moved around a lot. And if you grew up in the military, you know you don't stay in one place for very long. My father was in the Air Force, so my younger years, we were always constantly on the move. So O'Neill had graduated from high school and soon married his high school sweetheart, June, and they had one child, a son. Now, O'Neill would have another son from a common-law marriage to a woman in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And this common law marriage was why he was still legally married to June. So I'm not really sure it was common law. So at one point, O'Neill did join the army and it looks that he was discharged around February 28, 1982. And it seems that it was after this time that his life of drifting and criminal offenses had begun. Now, at one point, Pierce County detectives asked the FBI's behavioral analysis unit if they could develop a profile on Darren D. O'Neill, like their suspected killer. What things could they look for that they could help that they weren't even thinking about at this time? And what they told the detectives was that O'Neill's profile was that of a serial killer and that they felt that he might have been acting out of fantasy when he kidnapped and potentially killed Robin Smith. Now, about two months after Robin's disappearance on Crystal Mountain, which lies east of Mount Rainier, hikers came across some human remains close to where the flagman had spotted O'Neill driving the tan Chrysler. Now, just inside the wood line, a skull and jawbone would be discovered. Police carefully collected the items and began searching the surrounding area, and they found additional bones scattered in the vicinity and in the base of a nearby tree they found some folded clothing matching the clothing Robin was last seen wearing. Also inside this tree was a wallet with Robin's driver's license inside. Now, further searching would turn up a claw hammer. This was similar to the one O'Neill's former employee had reported missing. And the claw hammer would be confirmed to be the murder weapon by the medical examiner. Robin's cause of death was a result of blunt force trauma. So Darren D. O'Neill was charged with murder in the first degree for the intentional death of Robin Smith, and the FBI issued another unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant for O'Neill. In June 1987, with O'Neill still on the loose and Wendy's body still having not turned up, FBI Special Agent Michael Elsie of the Portland office was called in to assist, and he began to look into local sexual assault cases that had yet to be solved to see if there were any links to O'Neill. Were there other victims out there? But nothing really seemed to pan out. So he'd go around to all these police departments, you know, comparing the photographs with sketches. And one day he met with Portland Police Detective Bill Carter to look at some sketches. And since O'Neill looked very different in all of his mugshots, they knew this was a stretch. But in doing so, one picture seemed to stand out. And this was a photo related to the abduction and rape of a 14-year-old girl named Heidi Lang. Now, I will say, I don't believe Heidi Lang is her real name. 
but I'm going to call her Heidi Lang because of my research. That's the name that came up. Now, her description of what happened did match O'Neill's MO or his modus operandi. Around midnight on January 17th, 1987. Now, this is two months before Robin's murder. Heidi left her home to walk to a nearby convenience store to buy a soda in North Portland. Now, this was a tough part of town, but Heidi had walked it plenty of times, but never that late at night. So as she crossed the street near the I-5 overpass ramp, a trucker called to her from his parked rig, but she just kind of ignored it, kept her head down and kept moving. And Heidi got to the store, she bought her soda and started to walk back to her house, hoping to get back before her mom realized that she had left because she didn't have permission to leave. So as she neared the overpass, she noticed that the truck and the trucker were gone. But suddenly, the trucker jumped out of the bushes, forcing what he told her was a gun in her back and forced her down an embankment and into his semi-truck. Now, Heidi felt that her abductor had every intention of killing her. After forcing Heidi into the sleeper compartment of the truck, he took off driving south on I-5 for approximately 20 to 30 minutes. The whole time he is threatening her. He is telling her he's going to make her a whore. He is going to sell her to pimps and that he is going to cut her open if she angers him in any way. Now, Heidi did try to keep him talking, but at one point, he stopped the truck, he climbed into the back sleeper compartment, and he started to repeatedly rape and sodomize her for over a four-hour period. Now, during all this time, she again, I'm not sure how she did this, but she just kept him talking. She just kind of wanted to keep his mind off of things, and she just wanted to give him the impression that, you know, I don't really mean anything, I'm insignificant, and that she was just there to be with him. And if he let her go, it didn't mean anything. She wouldn't tell anybody because she felt that even at 14, she knew that this guy hated women. And she just wanted to make herself feel very small and insignificant. So if he let her live, it wouldn't really be a big deal. And it worked because that's just what he did. After driving for 15 more minutes, he left her on the side of the road. And Heidi ran until she reached a truck stop in Aurora and asked an employee there for a ride home. Not really sure why she didn't call the police, but she did get a ride home. And once home, she told her mother what had happened and they contacted the police, and Heidi bravely submitted to a rape examination. So when the FBI agents met with Heidi and her mother, they showed her a photo lineup, and she easily picked out Darren O'Neill as her abductor and rapist. So the FBI contacted the Tacoma office, telling them that they had a witness to testify against O'Neill when he was eventually caught. So in June 1987, Darren D. O'Neill's name was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Countless sightings all over the Pacific Northwest popped up, but as time went on, these leads seemed to dry up. But on January 3rd, 1988, in Lakeland, Florida, so all the way across the country, an on-duty police officer was watching what he suspected was a drug deal going down when one of the cars from that deal had pulled up alongside of the police car and the man inside had asked for directions pretending to be lost. So the officer told this guy, why don't you pull over to the curb? And that's when he took off at a high rate of speed. Officers gave pursuit, calling in the car's Louisiana license plate number. Now, when the suspect's vehicle hit the curb and he was no longer able to drive it, he took off on foot, but was soon captured. The suspect gave his name as John Mayhew and was in the process of being transported back to Louisiana for the stolen car. And that's when a rookie female police officer with the Lakeland Police Department took it upon herself 
to compare Mayhew's fingerprints with those listed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, and she discovered a match to Darren D. O'Neill. So O'Neill, instead of going to Louisiana, was extradited back to Washington State to face charges. Now, this would only be for Robin's murder since Wendy's body had yet to be found. Prosecutors worried, though, about Robin's case as it wasn't really strong because it lacked a definitive identification from the evidence in the trunk. But they decided to take their chances. And on January 4th, 1989, in a Pierce County courtroom, O'Neill's trial began with jury selection. However, O'Neill shocked the courtroom by pleading guilty to Robin's murder. Now, did he honestly feel remorseful and wanted to take responsibility, or was there another reason? And if you pick the second choice, you would be correct. In Washington State at that time, there was an interesting legal loophole. If a suspect pleaded guilty to murder, the minimum amount of time that they could receive was 333 months behind bars. So a little shy of 28 years. You are pleading guilty to murder one, intentional murder, premeditated murder, and the most you'll receive is a little shy of 28 years. Robin's family was devastated, knowing that O'Neill could someday be free. Now, not all was lost, though, because O'Neill still faced charges for kidnapping and rape against Heidi Lang in Oregon. Now, if convicted for that crime, he could be put away for life. But a problem arose when prosecutors discovered that the rape kit could not be used as a comparison to O'Neill because it had been improperly stored and had collected mold. And at that time, there really wasn't DNA evidence to use. So on May 16, 1990, O'Neill's trial began and Heidi was called to testify. Now, Heidi would recount years later how difficult it was for her to face O'Neill again, fearing that if he was not convicted and he only had to serve a little shy of 28 years, she felt that when he got out, he would come after her. Now, her fears were put to rest when the jury came back and convicted O'Neill of 16 counts involving kidnapping, rape, and sodomy and sentenced him to 135 years in prison. So the judge in that case said, and these are going to be served consecutively not concurrently. Currently, O'Neill is serving his little shy of 28-year sentence in a Washington state penitentiary, after which he will be transported to Oregon to begin serving basically the rest of his life behind bars. Now, besides the murder of Robin Smith and the rape of Heidi Lang and the suspected murder of Wendy, he's also suspected of abducting and killing another woman, Aaliyah Schubert, whose body was found along Interstate 84 in eastern Oregon. Schubert was from Twin Falls, Idaho, and had been traveling to pick up her boyfriend on June 9, 1987, when her car broke down near the Gear Jammer truck stop in Mountain Home. Now, O'Neill has denied any involvement in Leah's murder, and no evidence except for the similarities with Robin's murder connect him to this crime. Now, overall, O'Neill is suspected of abducting and murdering up to six women, but has only ever been convicted of one. And to this day, Wendy Ahu's body has never been found. All right, everyone, that is it. That is this week's episode. And I thank you so much for listening. So I do have an announcement to make, and it was a really difficult one to come to, but I wanted to share with you that Criminal Discourse is going to be moving to about an every other week format for at least the immediate future. And this is due to some personal health issues that I've had that I was hoping would improve more quickly than they have been. So with Maddie having taken a step 
back, it's really been a bit too much to try to keep up with weekly episodes because we want to do a good job for you all. We enjoy doing this. I enjoy doing this, but it's just getting a bit too much right now with some personal things going on in my life. So not to completely burn myself out, both Maddie and I decided that we would move it to an every other week format for the time being. Our hope is in the new year when hopefully things get brighter for everyone, we can go back to the weekly format. So if we have some new listeners out there, we still have 69 previous episodes you can listen to. And to our ongoing listeners, we thank you for your support. We hope that you'll stick with us. We really do like doing this, but crazily real life sometimes gets into the way, if not all the time. So again, thank you so much for listening. And as I always end the episode, if you see something, say something. You may have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime, like all those people that came forward and gave their little bed in their identification of O'Neill. And as always, we want you to stay safe. We're still going through this all. We hope that there are brighter days ahead for all of us. And of course, we could all use a little kindness. All right, everybody. So until next time in about two weeks, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>